I'll ask that you please stand for the reading of God's glorious word. We're in Colossians 15, or Colossians 1, 15 through 20 this morning. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You may be seated. Well, good morning, and um, I'm, I assume that most everyone here knows that today is what we call Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, so I thought because of that, in honor of that, I would uh, start out the, the sermon with a little story about that. Um, so, um, mo- or most of you may not know this, but for those of you who don't know, I am a big Vikings fan. And if you follow football, then you know they had a really good year this year. They made it to the NFC Championship game, and then the wheels came off the bus. And uh, it was, became very evident very quickly that we were not going to make it to the Super Bowl. And... Uh, the Eagles made it, and I have to tip my hat to the Franklins and to the Mans. And um, Ian gave me this green shirt with a dog head on, and he really wanted to wear it up here because it has something to do with the Eagles. And I told him no, that would I think that would be distracting. And then he suggested I use it as a, a sweat rag, with the th- which I thought that was a better idea. But it's it's just a big T-shirt and it's big and bulking. I've got my trusty little sweat rag right here, so. Um, but I figured uh, I would do something else instead. I would you know still being a little bitter and wishing that I was watching my Vikings tonight playing that I figured I would do what any good fan would do at this point, and that is I'm going to throw my team under the bus so that I could make a sermon illustration for y'all. Um, so I mentioned they had a good season. This this season, unfortunately, though, really characterizes what it's like to be a Vikings fan. They, I could bore you with the stats of how a lot of success, and then always followed by letdown with disappointment. I can tell you all the stats about how they've lost every Super Bowl they've played in their own form in the Super Bowl. The last six times they've played in the NFC Championship game, they've lost them. Um, they've lost heartbreakers. They've been a part of the biggest blowout in NFL playoff history. They, the list goes on. But what I want to share with you all is the fact that they're also, they have the distinction of being a part of one of the uh, most famous bloopers in NFL history, and that's what I want to focus on for, for the moment. Um, the play involved one of their players named Jim Wrongway Marshall. Now, if you don't know anything about sports, you let me just tell you that in the world of athletics, you gain your nickname because of something you do on the field, and so you don't want to get the nickname wrong way, okay? So in this game, uh, the other team had the ball. The Vikings tackle him, and in the process of tackling him, he fumbles the football, Jim Marshall comes in, scoops up the ball, runs it to the end zone, chucks it out of the end zone, celebrating, is excited. And as a fan, you typically would be really excited at that moment. But the problem is he gained his nickname on this play. And so when he scooped that ball up and took off running to the end zone, he ran to the wrong end zone. So when he threw that ball out, he's thinking he just scored six points for his team, when in reality he scored what's called a safety. So he just scored two points for the other team. So... That is Jim Wrongway Marshall. And so it's, he, or he was interviewed, of course, after this game, and he basically said, I just got turned around on the field. You know, in the excitement of seeing the ball on the ground, I saw there's no one around me, there's no one you know, in front of me, there's the end zone. I just got turned around, I lost my bearings, I scooped it up, and I ran to the end zone. And so it's this 
getting turned around. It's this losing our bearings, losing our direction that I want to talk about. Uh, These last few weeks, uh, we've been in Colossians, and we've seen Paul emphasize and reemphasize the gospel. And Paul is not writing this letter to the church in Colossae simply to say, um, hey, I've heard of your love for Jesus and for each other. That's really great. And isn't it cool how we've never met, but we're united in the gospel? He says that, but that's not the reason for the letter. The reason for the letter is because he's heard there's these false gospels infiltrating the church. And he wants to warn them against that. He says, don't be led astray by these false gospels. So he emphasizes and reemphasizes the gospel. And in verses 15 through 20, we just heard it read, um, they focus entirely on Jesus. It's as if Paul is answering the question, who is Jesus? And so he gives this very deep and theologically rich answer. But the gist of that answer is this. It's the supremacy of Jesus. He is greater than everything. It's all about Jesus. Everything revolves around Jesus. And Jesus is at the center of the gospel. So if we remove Jesus from the gospel, we're going to be left with a false and a distorted gospel. When we uh, make the gospel about someone or something else, we get turned around. We lose our bearings. We lose our sense of direction. We're going to end up running hard, but we're going to discover that we're in the wrong end zone. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because it's all about him. So before we dive in, I'd like to spend a moment to pray and just ask that the Lord would reorganize our thoughts. And then we'll dive into the sermon. So would you all pray with me? God, thank you for your word and that it is a lamp to our feet, to our path, and that it is that true north, it is the compass, it is the point of reference that we need so that when we get lost, when we get turned around, we can go to your word and be reoriented. And I pray this morning as we study your word, as we see Jesus lifted up, that we would come to adore him more. As we come to understand Jesus better, we would also understand ourselves better and see how desperately we need him and how good it is to make him preeminent in our lives. God, I pray that you would allow me to speak your words clearly, to proclaim this gospel, to turn the eyes of my brothers and sisters here to Jesus, and that we would walk away from here loving you more. Would you please be glorified in all of this? And would you please make yourself known? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So for the outline of this sermon, uh, for the you note takers, um, if you want to put at the top, you can just put the question, who is Jesus? And I'm basically going to look at all of Paul's answers, and those are going to be our points. Now, We obviously just heard the the text read, and it's not a very long text. It's only six verses, but there's a lot in there. There's lots of short little statements, and there's a ton to unpack with each of those statements. So we can't unpack all of that here. It would take too long, and the reality is it would take, I mean, some of these statements, you could take multiple sermons just to unpack them. So we're going to kind of look at bird's eye view. We're going to sort of hit some of the high points, and then throughout it, we're also going to look at how If you distort some of these truths, this is how we end up with some false gospels that are present in our age. So let's dive in. We'll get started in uh, verse 15. And he says, he. So who is he talking about? It's Jesus. Verses 13 and 14, he directs the attention to Jesus. So he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So point number one, he is the image of God. 
Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, what does that mean? How are we supposed to understand this? I think we should start with the end part of that, the invisible God part. I grew up memorizing a children's catechism, and one of the questions was, who is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit and has not a body like man. So um, God is a spirit. He's invisible. He doesn't have a body like man. It's a pretty obvious answer. And Scripture supports that. It affirms that. Jesus says in John 4, 24, that God is a spirit, and he is to be worshipped in spirit and truth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians three seventeen that the Lord is a spirit, and we just sang it a little while ago, immortal, invisible, God-only-wise. That phrase is taken from Paul's benediction in 1 Timothy 1.17. So God the Father, the first part of the Trinity, is a spirit. He's invisible. And Romans 1.20 tells us that all of creation testifies to the existence of God. So even though we can't see God, creation tells us there is a God. It says He exists. And Romans 1.20 tells us that the testimony of creation is so good that we are left without an excuse. We can't say, well, I've never heard of God. I've never read the Bible. I've never been to church. No one's ever told me about God. Creation's testimony is so good that we cannot deny the existence of God. But the thing is, when we look at a sunset, that may stir up within us this realization, there's a creator. But when I look at that sunset or I look at the mountains, the doctrine of grace or total depravity, these theological issues that we study, the creation doesn't stir that up with me. I can't learn that from creation, right? So what God does in his mercy is he has revealed himself to us in another way. He has made himself visible to us through Jesus. So Jesus is the image of God. And Jesus affirms this in John 14. Philip asks Jesus to show us the Father And Jesus' response is, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am the image of the invisible God. And that phrase, the image of God, it takes us back to Genesis, right? It takes us to the creation narrative, and specifically to the creation of man. What does it say? Man is made in the image of God, right? But what's the difference here? Man is made in the image. Jesus is the image So there's a key difference there. We are made. Jesus is not. I had a pastor who used to always describe it this way. He said, we are like a mirror. We were created to reflect the image of God. We are not the image of God, but we're simply a mirror that reflects the attention. So when people look at us, our goal is to turn the attention to God. And we do it poorly, right? We're Because of sin, we're like broken and cracked mirrors. So we don't do it perfectly, but that is our purpose to direct the attention back to God. But Jesus is the image of God. Or another way you could think of it is the sun and the moon. The sun is the source of light, right? The moon does not give off light. So at night when we see the moon, it's simply reflecting the light of the sun. So we're like the moon. We don't have that source of light within us. We're simply reflecting the light of Christ. So what that means for us is this. If Jesus is the image of God, then if we want to see God... We look at Jesus. If you want to see the character of God, then look at the character of Christ. If you want to see how God loves, then look at how Jesus loves. If you want to see God being patient, then look at the ways Jesus is patient. If you want to see God display a holy and a righteous anger, then look at the ways Jesus displayed a holy and righteous anger. When we look upon Jesus, we see God. So how do we do that? How do we look upon Jesus? We're still kind of left in this boat of, well, he's invisible to us because he's not here. He's not physically present in our world. He has gone away to prepare a place for us. 
But John answers that for us in chapter 1. Jesus is the Word. So when we look upon the Word, we are looking upon the Father. When we study the Word, we are studying the Father. And so we need to be a people who make that a daily practice of immersing ourselves in the Word so that we can be in the presence of the Father. So point number one, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Our second point is found in the second half of verse 15. It says, the firstborn of all creation. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does this firstborn language mean? That that can be a little confusing, right? Um, If we're not careful, I said it earlier, we can remove Christ from the gospel and we're left with a false gospel. And this is an example of that. If we're not careful, if we don't properly study the word, we can come away with a lie. Uh, Groups like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they do not believe that Jesus is God. They would say God created Jesus. And they'll point to this verse as their source for that. They'll say he's the firstborn. He was created. He's the first of creation. He was the first thing God created. But we would reject that claim. We say, no, Jesus is God. And this verse is not supporting that. In verse 15, we just talked about it. Jesus is the image of God. We were made in the image. Jesus was not made. Verses 16 through 20 are also going to reject this claim that Jesus is not God, that he was made by God. So what then do we take, what do we take away from this meaning? How do we understand this firstborn language? Well, firstborn actually has two meanings. The first one is the one we're all most uh, used to. It's the most common one. It's, this, it's used in regards to birth order. So I have two children, Micaiah and Judah. Micaiah is my firstborn because he's the oldest. He was the first one born. So firstborn. And we see that throughout the Bible, don't we? And especially in the Old Testament. And a lot of times it's, 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 in, it's used when we're talking about uh, the firstborn son and he's receiving the blessings. But we see also in Scripture it's used a different way. And this is the second way it can be used. It can be used as a legal term or a rank that is given, like a military rank that is given to someone. And it is not dependent on birth order. And we see several times in Scripture where firstborn is used in this way. In Exodus 4.22, God says to Moses, Tell Pharaoh that Israel, Jacob, is my firstborn son. Well, if we're thinking about in birth order, that doesn't make sense, does it? Remember, Jacob is a twin, and his brother, his twin brother was Esau, who was born first. Remember, he came out first, and then Jacob came out clinging to his heel. So if we're talking about birth order, that's not correct. Jeremiah 31.9, God says, I am the father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Well, Ephraim is the son of Joseph, you know, the multicolored coat, the interpreter of dreams. And he had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Manasseh was the oldest, the firstborn. And yet here God is saying, Ephraim is my firstborn. And then we heard it in our call to worship this morning, Psalm 89. He's speaking about David and he says, I will make him, David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And yet if we recall David's birth order, didn't Samuel have to go through seven older brothers before he got to David? So how in the world can we call David the firstborn if we're using it as a as, um, birth order? So it doesn't make sense if we are using firstborn here to talk about birth order. But if we use it as a legal title, then those, those texts make more sense. Those are titles that were given to them. They were ranks that were given to them. And so when we look back at verse 15... 
And instead of viewing this title that Jesus has as firstborn in regards to birth order, but we see it as a title that he has been given, it makes much more sense. It's saying he is the legal and rightful heir to the father's inheritance and power and authority. He holds this title of firstborn over all of creation. It means he rules over all things. So our second point is this. Jesus is first. Jesus is first over all of creation. And what that means for us is he has to be first in my life. He has to be first in your life. He has to be first in our relationships, our job, our employment, our work, our hobbies, our pursuits, our desires, our goals, our wishes. He needs to be first in every single aspect of our lives. Jesus must be first. Now, if we move on to verse 16, we're going to find our third point there. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So number three is he is creator. And what did he create? Created all things. For by him all things were created. Now Paul could have stopped right there, and he literally means everything. Everything that's been created was created by Jesus but he doesn't stop. He, he fleshes that out for us to emphasize, drive home the point that everything was created by Jesus. The visible, the invisible, the seen, the unseen, the material, the spiritual, all of that was created by Jesus. And it's interesting that he digs into that more and towards the end where he says thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. That language kind of is, we sort of miss out on this, but a lot of times when Paul uses that language, he is referring to the spiritual realm. Ephesians 6, where he says this this war is not between flesh and blood, but then he describes this spiritual war that takes place. He uses these same words. So most commentators look at this and say he, when he says dominions, rulers, authorities, he's speaking about the spiritual realm. And the reason he points that out is because law, or the reason Paul says that here is because Paul is laying the groundwork for something he's going to address later in chapter 2. Remember I said that he's addressing false gospels. And one of those false gospels is the practice of angel worship. He's going to call them out on that in chapter 2. But it's as if Paul's saying here, everything Jesus created is under his authority. He is far superior than his creation. So don't worship the angels. Don't worship the spiritual. Don't worship the visible. Worship Jesus because he's far better than his creation. All things were created by Christ and for Christ. So that means his creation was made by him in order to praise him. To paraphrase the theologian J.B. Lightfoot, when we worship the created, whether the visible or invisible, man or spiritual beings, we ignore or degrade Christ. It's wrong for us to worship the created. Jesus is far better than his creation, and therefore he must be the object of our worship. In verse 17, we're going to get to our next point. And he is before all things. Now, what does that mean for Christ to be before all things? One commentator put it this way. The word is, that's in this verse. So he is before all things. That word is declares that Christ's preexistence is an absolute existence. So what that means is Christ has always existed and he will always exist. So number four, he is eternal. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was saying, I exist outside of time. I have no beginning and no end. I am 
eternal. And I think this is one of those truths where we don't have really any issue with it, but I think for us to really be able to appreciate it and to marvel at it, we need to go to our next point, and then we'll put those together, and I think we will have a better understanding of it. So second half of verse 17, he says, And, and in him all things hold together. So it's through Jesus that all things are held together. So number five, he is sustainer. Our planet rotates at just the right speed and it doesn't fling off into the universe and it stays the perfect distance from the sun because Christ holds all things together. Our bodies are functioning right now. We're not having to all right, breathe, heart pump, blood flow. We're not having to tell our body to do that because Christ holds all things together. Jesus is intimately involved with his creation and he holds it all together. And so this truth rejects the lie of deism. You may have heard deism described as God as the clockmaker, where he made the clock, he wound it, and then he set it down and left it, right? So deism would say that God created all of this, he created the laws of nature, and then he just walked away, and he doesn't interfere with creation anymore. But that's a lie, and Scripture rejects that, because we see throughout Scripture that he is intimately and intentionally involved with his creation, so much so that he knows when the sparrow falls dead and he knows the number of hairs on each of our heads. So I think when we couple the truth that he is a sustainer with the truth that he is eternal, we're comforted in knowing that Jesus will always hold it together. He will always be intimately and intentionally involved with his creation. So we don't have to worry that there's going to come a point where Jesus will cease to exist and then chaos is going to ensue because he's not holding it together anymore. So I think in light of that truth, that he's our eternal sustainer, let me ask you the question, what are you not trusting him with? What areas of, our, of your life are you living as though God is not involved and doesn't care? Maybe you've been beaten down by the, the, the difficulties of life. Maybe it feels like a wave has come in and knocked you down, and then you're trying to get back up, and another wave has come in and knocked you down. You just you can't get up. It's the burdens of life are too difficult. Maybe a loved one has rejected the gospel, and it breaks your heart to see them do that. Maybe there's life, major life decisions that are in front of you, and you just feel confused and uncertain as to how to make those decisions and what to do. Or maybe you or a loved one is sick and suffering and it just feels like the sickness and the suffering is never going to go away. What are those areas in your life where it feels like God is not there? He's not present. He's ignoring you. Those areas where you, your prayers, your cries, your pleadings to him feel like they're just falling on deaf ears. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to cling to the truth that he is our eternal sustainer. And even though it may feel like he's not there, he is there. He is still intimately and intentionally involved in each of our lives. I like how Sam Storms in his book, The Hope of Glory, put it. He said, the Lord Jesus is bearing the universe towards a consummation. He's moving and managing and orchestrating all that he sustains so that on that final day, his glory will be radiantly seen and his purpose will have been perfectly attained. Therefore, confidently... Rest and trust in the one who holds all things together and continues unabated and undeterred in the, pers the pursuit of his purpose for our spiritual good and his everlasting glory. So Jesus is our eternal sustainer. All right, verse 18. 
And he is the head of the body, the church. So number six, he is the head of the church. Jesus is the head over the church. Now Paul describes the church as a body in some of his letters, and he even uh, describes us as parts of that body serving different functions. But we see here that the role of the, of the head is reserved for Jesus. And the significance of that is this. The head steers the body, right? It's the command center. That's where our brain is, right? It's, it's how we, are, we direct our body and we do things. The, the fact that I can look at these notes in my Bible and formulate thoughts and then say words and move my hands around like this is because my brain is giving me direction on that, right? And the fact that you're sitting here receiving my words and you're processing them and deciding, yeah, that's a good point. I'm going to write that down. Or, no, I really wish Matt was up there preaching. You know, your brain is helping direct that. And so Jesus, as the head, gives direction to the body, which is the church. And that's both global and local. So Jesus is not only the head of the global church, but he is also to be head over each local church. So we here at Midlands, our desire is for Jesus to rule over our church. We want Jesus to be the head. We want to take our commands. We want to get direction from Jesus. We don't want someone else to be the head of this church. And so that means two challenges for us. It first means as members of this church, we need to hold the leadership accountable to that. If there ever comes a moment where you feel like, you know, I don't think they're submitting to Christ. I think they are submitting to some other authority. Then we need to be made aware of that. That needs to be pointed out. This, the, other, the second challenge is this. As members of a church, whether it's this church or another church, we need to resist the temptation to enter church as a consumer. We need to enter it as contributors. If Jesus is the head then our aim is to please him. It's not to please ourselves, and it's not to please each other. So don't enter church asking, what can I get out of this? How can I be fed? How can I be served? We need to enter church. We need to approach church asking, what can I give? How can I feed? How can I serve? How can I contribute to this body? I think when we approach church as consumers, what ends up happening is we become the head of the church. And the danger with that is when we become the head, we end up letting our preferences rule and dictate how the church functions. Now, it's okay to have preferences. It's okay to have different opinions. If you took a poll of everyone in here, I guarantee you, you're going to have different opinions on, I don't like this, or I like this about this thing. You know, I wish they did this with music, or they did this with the service, or they didn't do this every week, or they approached this differently, or they did the Lord's Prayer every week. You know, you're going to get a ton of different opinions, and that's okay to have preference and opinions, but they should never rule the church. They should never direct the church because the danger is when we start doing that, you're going to eventually get into bigger issues that are more sinful. Like, I think this is offensive. I don't like this verse. Let's cut that out. Let's not include that. So we need to be on guard against that. We want to be a healthy church, and a healthy church is a place where Jesus is the head and its members humbly and joyfully Submit to his headship. And the reason Jesus is the head of the church is because of, if we continue in verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The reason he is the head of the church is because of point number seven. Jesus is alive. He's alive. How awesome is that? 
I want to read this list of names to y'all. R.L. Hubbard, Charles Taze Russell, Mary Baker Eddy, Joseph Smith, the Buddha, and Muhammad. Now, you may or may not have recognized all those names, but there's two things that they all have in common that I want to point out. The first is they are all seen as founders of various religions. And those religions are very popular ones that are still growing and spreading throughout our world today. But the second thing I want to point out is this. They all have in common is the fact that they're dead. They all died at some point. They founded their religion. They got a bunch of followers to be convinced that they were right, and then they died. Whether they expected it or not, whether they thought it was going to happen or not, they died. They had a a funeral. People mourned their death. They were buried, and that's it. We haven't heard from these individuals anymore. Now, Jesus died too. He hung on the cross. People mourned his death. He was put in a tomb, and he was buried, right? And if Jesus had stayed in the tomb... If he had not risen from the dead, then we would have to put his name on that list. He would just be another person who founded another religion, got some followers, and then died. But the difference is this. Jesus rose from the dead. He is not still in the grave. The truth that Jesus is risen from the dead, that he conquered death, is the foundation block to the Christian faith. If someone could prove that Jesus was in fact dead and his body's over here in this tomb, then the Christian faith is going to crumble. Paul said it this way, If Jesus had not risen from the dead, then our faith would be in vain and we would be a people most pitied. He's saying if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we've been wasting our time believing this lie. Yet we have seen the gospel spread and flourish and be sustained for nearly 2,000 years, and it has transformed countless lives. It has caused people to abandon everything to see the gospel advance. Even in the face of persecution, even in the face of death, the gospel has thrived and has grown and has advanced. Guys, a lie does not have that kind of power. A lie of this magnitude can't sustain itself for this long. They can't deceive countless people, and it's not worth dying for. But on the other hand, a truth of this magnitude, it can have that power. It does have that power. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That means for us, he conquered death, and therefore, through him, we find new life. We find new life in this world. We are transformed. We're made into new creations But it doesn't end there. We have this promise that because he lives and is eternal, we will be raised with him once we die. Once our bodies waste away and die, we have the promise that if we are in Christ, we will be raised to life with him and will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All that is amazing. That is such phenomenal truth. And I think we forget that. I think we go, yeah, yeah, Jesus died. Oh, yeah, we're going to celebrate that in a few weeks that he died and then he raised from the dead. But y'all, that is huge, and that should spur us on to run this race every day. And the reason Jesus was able to rise from the dead, we see it in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Number eight, he is fully God. This is the climactic moment of these verses. We've been teasing it for a while, you know, he's 
uh, the image of God. He's the creator, eternal sustainer. We've been applying these godly attributes to him. But verse 19 is the big reveal. Hey, guess what? He's God. He is fully God. He's not just some good moral teacher. He's not a man that was simply filled with the spirit for a time. He's not a demigod. He's not a man with partial divine status. He is fully man and fully God. And what that means for us is this. We have an eternal high priest in him, and he is able to save us. And then finally, in verse 20, we see that, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So number nine, he is the gospel. The gospel revolves around Jesus. He's at the center of it. You can't have the gospel without Jesus. It's through Jesus and the blood that he poured out that we can find peace with God. That's the gospel, that peace with God is available, and it's through his son, Jesus. Now, what does it mean when it talks about reconciling? And through him to reconcile to himself all things. What does this mean? Does this open the door to universalism? You know, does this say that all right, there's going to come a day where he's going to reconcile all things to himself and he's going to redeem it? And so even Satan and the demons are going to be redeemed and we're going to all dwell in heaven with him? That's what universalism teaches. And they would point to this verse and say, yeah, that's what's being said right here. But the short answer to that question is no, absolutely not. Universalism is a lie. And scripture rejects that lie. So we've been looking at Jesus in these verses, so why don't we look at his own words? Um, Jesus speaks the most about hell. And in Matthew 13, he gives the famous parable of the wheat and tares. He says, there's going to come a day where the wheat and the tares are going to be separated. And the tares, which are basically these weeds, are going to be bundled and tossed into the fire. And then we're told a little later in Matthew 13, he's talking to the disciples and he explains this parable to them. And he says... On, on that day when the Lord returns, the righteous will be gathered and brought to the Father, and the unrighteous are going to be gathered, and they're going to be tossed into a fiery furnace where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus himself rejects the idea of universalism. You must be in Christ to be saved. So how then do we reconcile or understand reconciliation here in verse 20? Well, there's two leading thoughts or opinions on it. The first says that after judgment occurs, so after the tares are tossed into the fire, that's when reconciliation will happen. So at that point, all you have left are the righteous. And so there's no issue there because he's going to reconcile all to himself and he's going to bring the righteous to himself. The second opinion says this, and this is the one I personally would agree with. It says that reconciling does not equal redeeming or restoring. Reconciliation involves the process of judgment and involves that process of the wheat and the tares being separated. And it also involves the process of subjugation, which means all things will be put under his rule. I think you can think of it this way. Imagine two kingdoms that are at war with each other and then one kingdom finally wins. So that victorious king rides into the conquered kingdom and he's going to subjugate all those citizens. He's going to put all of them under his rule and authority. And the, the citizens who were loyal to the king, they're going to gladly submit to his rule. And because they were loyal to him, they will be welcomed and accepted as his own. But those who were disloyal to the king, those who were enemies, 
they can't deny it. They can't go hashtag not my king. They have to submit to his authority. But because they were his enemies, because they rebelled against him, they will also have to face his wrath and his punishment. There will be a day where Jesus will return. He will ride in victorious. The battle will be over and he is going to subjugate all of creation. He's going to put all of creation under his rule and authority. And I think when we think of reconciliation in these terms, it, it seems consistent and it lines up well with a text like Philippians 2.10 or 2 verses 10 through 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It doesn't say everyone's going to be saved at that point. But it clearly paints a picture. Everyone will acknowledge the truth that he is Lord. So those in Christ, those who are loyal to Christ, we will bow to Jesus. We will make this confession that he is Lord, and we will do it joyfully and willingly. And because we are in Christ, because we are covered in his righteousness, we will be welcomed by the Father as his own. But those who are not loyal, those who are outside of Christ, those who are still enemies of God, they too will bow before Jesus and they too will confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. But they're not going to do it joyfully. They're not going to do it willingly. They're going to do it under compulsion. They're going to do it as one who has been conquered and defeated. And because they are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, they will be judged by their own merits. And so they will have to face the eternal wrath of the Father. And that leads us back to point nine. Jesus is the gospel. The good news is that you don't have to be on that side. It's through Jesus and his blood poured out on the cross that we find peace with God. It's the fact that Jesus bore the wrath of the Father, that we can be spared the wrath if we are followers of his, if we are lovers of his, if we bow our knees and confess this truth with, with gladness and with joy and willingly. So throughout these verses, we have seen the supremacy of Christ. We've seen that it's all about Jesus. We've seen how everything revolves around him. He is to be first in everything. He is to be preeminent. And if we make the gospel about someone or something else, and we remove him from the gospel, then we're going to be left with a false or distorted gospel. We're going to get turned around. We're going to lose our bearings, our sense of direction, We're going to end up running hard, but we're going to run hard towards the wrong goal. But Paul says to avoid that, to protect yourself from that, cling to the gospel, cling to this truth. Let Christ be first in your life. Let him be preeminent, and you will protect yourself from doing that. So we're going to transition to communion now. And if you are a Christ, or if you're a follower of Christ, (laughs) um, please know the table is open to you. And I want to encourage you to take this time to reflect on what Christ has done and also begin examining your heart, saying, Lord, where am I not letting you be first in my life? Where have I elevated other things? Where am I degrading you by worshiping the created? And if you're not a follower, we ask that you uh, abstain from the table. This is a family meal, but I, I want to encourage you to use this time to reflect on these words and and. and Examine your heart. What are you putting your hope in? You know, Jesus is alive. He's eternal. He offers this eternal life to us. What are you worshiping that you think is actually offering you that? So let's pray and then please go and take part in communion. 
God, thank you that you sent your son Jesus and it is through him and the blood he poured out that we can find peace with you. God, I pray that um, you would allow Midlands Church to be a place where Jesus is the head. He has seen us superior. That our people would rejoice in that truth and boldly proclaim that truth. Help us to willingly and joyfully submit to your authority, Jesus. Pray that we will go out from here wanting to turn others' eyes to Jesus. I pray all this in your Son's name. Amen.